in service at this time. If you're like me, you've wanted to buy gold for years. Lots of commercials out there. But who can you really trust? I didn't want a bad investment, but I didn't want to miss the boat either. Sound familiar? Fortunately, I've got great news. If you have an IRA or 401k and want to buy physical gold, eliminate fear and uncertainty from the process using the new Gold IRA Company Integrity Checklist. It helps you evaluate and choose the best gold IRA company. I used it to personally vet Augusta Precious Metals, and they're absolutely phenomenal. Use this checklist to choose the best gold IRA company. To get your free gold IRA company integrity checklist today, text CONTRA to 68592. Again, text CONTRA to 68592. That's CONTRA to 68592. Or go to AugustaPreciousMetals.com. Welcome to the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Broadcasting from the Augusta Precious Metals Studio, this is the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Yes, it is. Welcome, Intelligentsia. Another episode of useful information. I'm not going to tell you what to do with it. You may decide to do what you wish with it. Let's go here. We've got a lot to do and not a lot of time. I talked, I got a uh, tweet uh, from uh, Jack, uh, sorry, Jake Lang. He's a political prisoner, a January 6th political prisoner in the D.C. Gulag. And um, his people uh, asked me to put this word out. So I said, yeah, of course I will. The abuse of the January 6th political prisoners has reached unfathomable lows recently. With more drummed-up COVID lockdowns and horrendous solitary confinement in the D.C. jail gulag, the families of these patriot heroes have had to bear most of the burden having to sacrifice vital income to take care of their political prisoners. The despicable stories of fathers being ripped out of their homes Leaving behind young children and pregnant wives has been reported on over and over by the Gateway Pundit and in the last thousand days since January 6, 2021. Now one group has made a stand to support these families in a much needed way. Patriots, I want you to write this down and you need to go visit this. It's SponsorJ6.com. SponsorJ6.com. They've come together out of necessity to offer much-needed commissary and family support to the over 200 currently incarcerated January 6ers. It is the families at home that are desperately struggling to pay for prison phone calls and emailing credits just to stay in contact with their loved ones. On top of that, they have to pay thousands of dollars a year to buy commissary food, clothing, and hygiene products just so their patriot doesn't starve 
on the menial nutrition and sustenance they are provided. And it has become an overwhelming burden for many families who have been bankrupted entirely from the extortion racket that these prisons have become, and they have been, and they are. Young families are being evicted from homes and forced to move into apartments and even sleep in cars. This is exactly what the deep state and the FBI wanted when they decided to target these people for a constitutionally protected protest. But now you can help those in dire need. You can, my patriot friends. You can become a monthly sponsor to a January 6th family today. And they're extremely grateful. They need the support now more than ever. So again, head on over to the sponsor j6.com and please share on the social media. If you do, sponsorj6.com. Punch into your social media, let it fly. Now, Jake Lane manages this fund to ensure 100% of donations go directly to the January 6th prisoners. So visit sponsorj6.com to become a blessing to a family in need. Remember, the Lord refreshes those who refresh others. Think about it. Here we are, it's 2023. They are incarcerated three years. Some are still waiting to have a trial. You know, the speedy trial thing that was in the Constitution. Yeah, I don't think they had three years in mind for it. Oh, where do I want to start here? I don't know what to tell you right now. Let's talk about the 12 things that make Gen X the most annoying generation. And they're horrible. They are. Now, if you don't know what Generation X is, that's those that are born between the mid-1960s and early 1980s. They often find themselves sandwiched between the influential baby boomers and the dynamic millennials. While every generation has its unique characteristics and quirks, Gen X has garnered a reputation for a certain behaviors that some, well, eh, will find a tad annoying. So let's get into some of the reasons why Gen X is often labeled as the most irksome generation. Whether you're a Gen Xer yourself or just curious, this exploration promises a mix of humor, understanding, and a touch of nostalgia. Gen X often feels overshadowed that they are the influent by the influential baby boomers and the tech-savvy millennials. This has led to them developing a middle child complex, constantly seeking attention and validation. While obsession can be endearing, Gen Xers relentlessly you know, references to bands, movies, and TV shows from their youth can become tiresome. It's as if they believe no other era produced anything of value. Gen X has witnessed the rapid evolution of technology. However, their initial reluctance and skepticism towards newer tech trends can come off as being technophobes, even if they've now adapted them. The ongoing rivalry and constant comparisons with millennials often seem unnecessary. From work ethics to lifestyle choices, Gen X seems to have an opinion on everything millennial. Well, it's true. Growing up in an era of political and social upheaval, Gen X developed a cynical outlook. 
However, their constant skepticism and distrust can sometimes border on negativity. Yeah, say it ain't so. While reminiscing is natural, Gen Xers continuously longing for the good old days before the internet and smartphones can be grating, especially to those who embrace the present. And I'm guilty of that, because I remember before there were cell phones, life was just easier. Change is inevitable, but many Gen Xers display a noticeable resistance to newer societal norms and values, preferring to stick with what they know. Well, we all like our comfort zone. The grunge movement was significant in the Gen X era. However, the associated too-cool-to-care attitude, when overdone, can come off as insincere or even pretentious. Yes. While it's true that Gen X had a different kind of childhood, their repetitive tales of playing outside until dark and lack of parental supervision can sound redundant. But it is true. In today's world, where identification can be crucial, Gen Xers aversion to labels, especially regarding gender, sexuality, or even career roles, can be frustrating for many. Every generation believes their music is the best. However, Gen X's persistent belief that their era's music is superior can be off-putting to both older and younger generations. Well, it's While they've eventually adapted their initial skepticism and slow adaptation to platforms like Facebook or Instagram, made them seem out of touch. From fashion trends to social movements, Gen X often claims to have pioneered them, even if other generations popularized or adapted them differently. While independence is commendable, Gen Xers' continuous emphasis on their self-reliant nature often dismisses the value of collective efforts and community. And questioning traditional institutions is healthy, but Gen Xers often blanket disdain for everything from marriage to corporate structures, and that can be jarring. While they did experience a world both with and without the Internet, their claim of being the sole bridge generation between analog and digital eras yeah, that could seem self-congratulatory. Mm-hmm. Something interesting I know we talked, uh, you're going to hear about, and you have been hearing about, is the fact that um, McCarthy was thrown out of the speakership of the House. David Marcus over at the Daily Mail put this out and I gotta say something I don't think McCarthy should have been put in that position to begin with just not just don't think so and there are too many others that want to be the speaker of the house now and they're cut from the same cloth as McCarthy so in those historic new low in the nation's seemingly daily ritual of humiliation and the most shameful example yet of the utter incompetence of America's political class. What a house of fools. Here we go. The office of Speaker of the House of the United, of the United House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Bain went the gavel. 
and America marked a new historical low in the nation's seemingly daily ritual of humiliation. Late Tuesday afternoon, in a shambolic, fumbling on goal, eight House Republicans joined every single Democrat in voting out voting to oust Congressman Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. This would be shocking if it were not just another example of the utter incompetence of America's political class from top to bottom. You see, in the White House, uh, our, our daughtering, daughtering 80-year-old president is the rightful focus of an impeachment inquiry. His bi-weekly old man gaffes and senior moments compromise the nation he incompetently leads while his influence-peddling son sashays from child support hearings to state dinners to courtrooms without a hint of shame. And speaking of courts, when he's not on the campaign trail, the leading GOT presidential candidate is sitting in the dock under 91 state and federal indictments pursued by an overzealous, politically biased U.S. justice system. Though Trump certainly doesn't do himself any favors as he rants and raves and suggests a death penalty for his perceived enemies like a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. No, I understand that. This past weekend, the government nearly shut down. And no one cares except the federal workers and soldiers in uniform who nearly went unpaid. The southern border is so dangerously wide open even Democrat mayors are begging our Democrat president to do something, anything, to slow a mass of the migration crisis. And all the while, America's octogenarian leadership putters around the halls of power, falling down, freezing up, tragically dying of old age just hours after casting votes. We are through the looking glass. But just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, an ethically challenged former friend of an admitted sex trafficker, sad excuse for a congressman, leads a kamikaze mission to oust the most popular Republican in Congress from leadership. And why? In an epic act of self-love, maniac Matt Gates, who posts Game of Thrones meme selfies on the social media, drove the government into a ditch so he could get his smiling face on TV. Don't believe it? Well, then ask yourself, why does the Florida, you know, what does the Florida man do next? Now, Gates claims to be acting out of sincere concern and accuses MacArthur of, McCarthy of failing to fix the House's broken legislative process. On that point, he's at least over the right target. Congress is dysfunctional, and our government should not fund the leviathan of unaccountable federal agencies without necessary oversight. But what's Gates' solution? to plunge the entire country into even greater chaos. Now the House has no speaker. The business of running the country grinds to halt until we reenact the Byzantine drama of January's election of a new leader and round after round of vacuous speeches. Then it only took 15 ballots to elect McCarthy. All he had to do was give fringe Republicans the power to fire him at the drop of a hat, and big surprise, they did it. Now, to be fair, He's the one that challenged them. He said, go for it. And they said, okay, and they did. You know, McCarthy's known in the D.C. hallways as, like, he's like a magnet to TV, to the TV cameras. You know, like, uh, you know, insects to the light. That's him. 
throw up a TV camera, and he's there. He's like he's like the uh, photographic negative of Jesse Jackson. Same thing. You throw a camera, you know, TV camera up in front of Jesse Jackson, he'll run right to get in front of it. McCarthy's no different. Anyway. So who in their right mind would want this job? And let's be clear. The Democrats, especially Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, have their own special blame to accept for this startlingly sad state of affairs. Now, Jeffries claims, by the way, it's, I'm saying Jeffries, not Jeffers. I'm Jeffers. Jeffries is the goofy Democrat in Congress. Claimed he wanted Republicans to end their civil war for the good of the country. But if so, why not instruct Democrats to join with the 90% of Republicans who voted to save McCarthy's skin? What an olive branch it could have been. What a step towards progress and inching towards a government that functions as it should. If even Democrats could stomach a vote in support of a Republican, they could have at least voted present and lowered the threshold of votes that McCarthy needed to hang on. Instead, Democrats proactively sped his downfall. And again, for what? I think we know. As Democrats rushed to CNN and MSNBC to rub Republicans' noses in it, so much for their concern over democracy and our cherished institutions. You'll be shocked to hear that it's the American people who would bear the brunt of this as their concerns go unaddressed, while Washington dandies preen before the cameras. Told you. Isn't it always that way? Over and over again, the American people said they don't want Biden versus Trump, but it doesn't matter. We say we want a secure border and men out of women's sports, and we get poorly written episodes of the West Wing and House of Cards. Nobody in Washington seems to care what we want. It's all a game of musical chairs, and no matter what the pompous windbag winds up with the seat, we lose. This is part of the column we're supposed to insist that America is better than all this. But are we right now? I mean, think about it. <sighs> we got 535 con artists in the House of Representatives. I, 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 you know, personally, I don't care if the government shuts down. I like it. Shut the government down. That's just my opinion. Something else you might not know, but is happening especially for you people in my beloved Dixie, my beloved Dixie, my, my beloved fellow Dixonians. The Southern accent is disappearing because Gen Xers talk so differently than their baby boomer parents. That's what the scientists say. Uh, Stephen Lepore for the DailyMail.com says, uh, the study done as a collaboration between the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech shows that extras had a notable change in how they speak. The researchers studied hours of spoken word from people of different generations and saw that the accent became lighter as speakers got younger. The explanation was that demographic shifts saw more people move to the South, which led young people to adjust their speech to match their peers. The famous Southern drawl, is set to become extinct because Gen Xers from the Deep South speak so differently to their baby boomer parents, a study suggests. 
Now, scientists from the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech show that Xers uh, displayed a notable change in how they speak compared to their boomer elders. The researchers studied hours of spoken word from people of different generations and saw that the accent became lighter as speakers got younger. They say the exposition, I'm sorry, the explosion in pop culture, including uh, a TV, including MTV, may have been behind the rapid change in regional accents, but did not offer firm conclusions on why the change has taken place. Showing off accents is a popular subject for TikTokers to cover, including Southern social media influencers. Generation X is typically seen as being anyone born between 65 and 1982, while boomers are seen as being born between 1943 and 1964. Oscar winner Julia Roberts is perhaps the most famous Georgia-born Gen Xer. And we found that here in Georgia, quote, we found uh, that here in Georgia, white English speakers' accents have been shifting away from the traditional Southern pronunciation for the last few generations. End quote, said University of Georgia Associate Professor Linguistics Margaret Renwick. Today's college students don't sound like their parents, and we didn't sound like our own parents, added Renwick, who led, who led the study. The study used recordings of white people native to Georgia and born between the late 19th century up until the early 2000s, which is seen as the beginning of Generation Z. John Forrest, a fellow academic who co-authored the paper, said that the shift isn't limited to Georgia, but is largely responsible to a change in demographics across the southern United States after World War II. We are seeing similar shifts across many reasons, and we might find people in California, Atlanta, Boston, Detroit, that have similar speech characteristics, Forrest said. Now, post-World War II, millions of people moved to Georgia and its largest city of Atlanta, which is now seen as a southern hub for several high-profile industries. The study added that because of this migration, children may have heard more accents than their parents did at school and therefore modulated their own speech to match their peers. Well, what do you think? Think it's happening? I don't know. I don't know if it's happening. I don't know. I don't know. But I do not have to do this, though. This is a must. Have you or someone you know ever had a hard drive crash? Or maybe your cell phone or tablet died, taking all of your pictures with it. You've thought about backing up your data, but all of the plans out there cost too much money for just a little bit of storage space. Well, now there's a solution. Got backup? That's right, Got Backup will allow you to back up unlimited devices, up to 6 terabytes of data, for only $9.97 a month. And that's not all. You can earn commissions by referring friends and family, too. Got Backup is the only data storage center that allows you to earn income on your referrals. Check out Got Backup now. Log on to john-jeffers.com. That's john-jeffers.com. Log on now. Do it. Hello, this is Dave Kirshner from the Dave Kirshner Lightning Round Podcast. If you like post-apocalyptic, dystopian, and preparedness fiction as much as I like writing it, then pick up a copy of my five-part series today. In a nutshell, over the course of When Rome Stumbles, Hannibal is at the Gates, By the Dawn's Early Light, Colder Weather, and A Time for Reckoning, I crash the big ag and financial industries, 
unleash some jihadists and an EMP, then spend 20 years trying to evade a socialist dictator. All five parts are available in paperback and electronic formats from my overlords on Amazon. If you prefer the audio format, parts one through three are currently available, and parts four and five will be available in audio format by the end of the year. So pick up a copy of this exciting and action-packed series today. You won't be disappointed. And when you do that, make sure you uh, give Dave's show a listen. The Kirshner Files and the Lightning Round. He does a pretty pretty good job, I think. From the DMZ to the NATO front, this is Contra Radio Network. Broadcasting from the Augusta Precious Metals Studio, this is the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. All right, let's get back to it. Oh, by the way, if you have noticed, I've changed the logo for the Jeffers Brief. Yes, I think it looks pretty good. I made the logo. It's pretty cool. All right. Oh, it is. (laughs) All right. Uh, Connecticut enacts its most sweeping gun control law since the Sandy Sandy Hook shooting. You know, Connecticut's most wide-ranging gun control measure uh, since the 2013 law enacted after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting takes effect uh, Sunday. With proponents vowing to pursue more gun legislation despite legal challenges happening across the country. The new law, signed by Democrat Governor Ned Lamont in June, bans the open carrying of firearms and prohibits the sale of more than three handguns within 30 days to any one person, with some exceptions for instructors and others. Quote, we will not take a break and we cannot stop now. We will continue to pass life-saving laws until we end gun violence in Connecticut. Our lives depend on it, said Jeremy Stein, executive director of Connecticut Against Gun Violence. Immediately after it was passed, the law was challenged in court by gun rights supporters. Connecticut's landmark 2013 gun law passed in response to the 2012 elementary school shooting in Newton, or Newtown, that claimed 26 lives. It's also being contested in court. Besides Connecticut, which has some of the strictest gun laws in the country, other politically liberal-leaning states, including California, Washington, Colorado, and Maryland, have also passed gun laws this year that face legal challenges. They come in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court last year expanding gun rights. Now, they're gonna, this, is, this is the plan. They're going to keep throwing shit against the wall to see what sticks. And they're going to keep going at it. Not that they have a good legal argument. They just don't like it. They don't like guns. But they don't mind hiring people with guns to protect their sorry asses. Go figure, huh? Now, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom last week signed nearly two dozen gun control measures, including laws banning firearms from being carried in most public places while doubling taxes on guns and ammunition sold in the state. He acknowledged some might not survive a legal challenge 
And last week, a federal judge struck down a California law banning guns with detachable magazines that carry more than 10 rounds. Quote, we feel very strongly that these bills meet the new standard and they were drafted accordingly, Newsom said. But I'm not naive about the recklessness of the federal courts and their ideological agenda. Yeah, okay. Now, is that like the pot calling the kettle black? I mean, come on. About 150 gun rights activists held a rally outside the state capitol on Saturday despite the rainy, raw weather, to mark the last day that carrying a visible firearm was legal in Connecticut. But they remain hopeful the law will eventually be overturned in court, arguing its infringement on Second Amendment rights and unnecessary. It is not common in Connecticut to go to the grocery store and see somebody with an exposed firearm. Does it happen on rare occasions? Sure. But it is not a problem in our state. Holly Sullivan, president of the Connecticut Citizens Defense League told the Waterbury Republican American. She said there were already state laws on the books that address people illegally carrying a weapon in public or abusing the open carry law. The new law also increases bail and toughens probation and parole for what officials called a narrow group of people with repeated serious gun offenses, expands the state's current assault weapons ban, which is stupid. Assault weapons are already banned. And two, if you, you should know what the definition of an assault weapon is. If, because too many people use the term, but they have no idea what the definition is. Anyways, so it stiffens penalties for possession of large capacity magazines, expands uh, safe storage rules to include more setting, meddings, and adds some domestic violence crimes to the list of disqualifications for having a gun. Republican legislative leaders who represent the minority party in the state General Assembly accused Democrats of bragging about how safe Connecticut is because of the gun laws when there have been carjackings, serious property crimes, and other acts of violence. House Minority Leader Vincent Candelora, a Republican from North Brantford, said claims Connecticut is one of the safest states are a slap in the face to residents. Enough of the news conferences... Democrats should step away from the lectern and tap into what's happening in their district, he said in a statement. State Senate President Pro Tem Martin Looney, a Democrat, well, that's very, it's a very apt name for him, Martin Looney, a Democrat, from New Haven, called the legislation a very significant initiative, but stressed the battle is not over. Connecticut is, a, is vulnerable to states with looser gun laws, Looney said. He wants to pursue further limits on monthly gun purchases and require micro-labeling or ammunition micro-stamping to help law enforcement trace bullet casings to specific firearms, makes, and mods. Lamont, who proposed, enacting, uh, who proposed the newly enacted law, said he is interested in working with fellow governors in the Northeast to draft similar laws Given how the technology is changing so fast, and Connecticut can only do so much within our small state and within our borders. Well, there you go. If you want gun control, I'm sure gun control in Connecticut is just as effective as it is here in Chicago, which means it isn't. But, hey. Okay, my friends, this one is interesting, and I'll tell you why. 
You know, I started going back to church because I thought it was high time anyways. But it's funny when I... Now, here's, here's an example of how the Lord works in mysterious ways. This is true. I went to church. I went back to church. Thought it was high time. I need to get back there. So after church, came home, was putzing around on the computer. And I came across this article out of nowhere. Surprised me. And I found it interesting, and I'll tell you why, after I'm done. This is from uh, uh, The Conversation. That's the name of it. It says, this, this Christian text you've never heard of barely mentions Jesus, but it was a favorite of early Christians. Now, people usually think about the Bible as a book with a fixed number of texts within its pages. 24 books in the Jewish version of the Bible, 66 for Protestants, 73 for Catholics, 81 if you're an Ethiopian Orthodox. You say, how do they get 81? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you. <clears throat> now, there are writings that didn't make it into the Bible, and often they are called the Apocrypha. And it's a Greek term that refers to hidden or secret things. There are hundreds of apocryphal Jewish and Christian texts that, for one reason or another, were not included in different versions of the Bible. Some simply fell out of use. Some caused theological headaches for later Jews or Christians, and some were rejected because of their author, for supposedly not having really been written by an apostle, for instance when used with the capital A, by the way. Apocrypha refers to a handful of books included in the Catholic and Orthodox versions of the Old Testament, but not most Protestant ones. Just because a text was deemed apocryphal, however, does not mean that it was unpopular or lacked influence. Many texts are treated as an unimportant or unbiblical today were considered central at one time. As a scholar of early Christianity, some of my research centers on what was once an extremely well-read text, but one that most people today have never heard of, the Shepherd of Hermas. So, what's it about? I'm going to tell you. See, the Shepherd of Hermas was written sometime between 70 and 140 CE and takes place on the road between Rome and Naples. Hermas, who is presented as the text's author and narrator, has various encounters with two divine figures called the Church and the Shepherd, who give him commandments and visions that he is instructed to share with other believers. Now, the Shepherd is a sizable text. It's 114 chapters long, and substantial portions describe a vision of a tower under construction. The tower represents the church itself in the sense of all Jesus' followers built out of stones that represent different types of believers. Some fit right in, others must be reshaped or recolored, and some are rejected altogether. For example, stones representing rich people or businessmen are urged to repent, while hospital 
bold people are portrayed as properly shaped. Christian art, uh, like, uh, has long used the metaphor of a shepherd to describe Jesus and spiritual care. And other parts of the text are focused on how believers should manage their emotions, how to act ethically in the world, and how to obey God's will. The shepherd urges self-control and fear of God, trying to instill obedience and avoid allowing emotions like fear or doubt to overcome believers. Now, the shepherd focuses on how the text depicts believers as enslaved to God, as is true to some of the early Christian literature as well. The writer imagines that God's Holy Spirit is able to enter loyal, believer, loyal believers' bodies, possess them, urging them to do what God wills. Notably, figures like Jesus and the Apostles, they're virtually absent from the shepherd. Instead, readers find a story about an otherwise unknown enslaved man named Hermas, experiencing visions and talking with divine beings in the Italian countryside. Hermas is portrayed as a believer who doubts his own ability to accomplish what these two divine figures, the church and the shepherd, expect of him, lamenting throughout how difficult it is to follow God's commandments. Now, given that the shepherd is a long, rambling text that doesn't you know, explicitly mention Jesus, you might assume that it was only read by a small number of early Christian theologians. This, however, is not the case. The Shepherd became one of the most popular texts among Christians for the first five centuries CE. Even today, there are more surviving manuscripts of the Shepherd from antiquity than of any New Testament text except for the Gospels of Matthew and John. The visions were translated into Greek, I mean, sorry, were translated from Greek into Latin, Coptic, Ethiopic, Arabic, and Georgian. Eventually, the text spread as far west as Ireland and as far east as China. The shepherd is even included in what scholars consider one of the oldest and most complete Bibles in the world, the canon, canonical Christian Bibles today end with Revelation, a dramatic book of apocalyptic visions. The Codus Sinaiticus, however, a 4th or 5th century manuscript, now held at the British Library, ends with the shepherd. The text inclusion in such an expensive deluxe codex highlights how important the text was to many Christians, even as the contents of the New Testament were being solidified. <coughs> so pages of the Codex Sinaiticus, <coughs> the world's oldest surviving Christian Bible, it is on uh, display. Uh, well, well, it's on display in a laptop at Westminster Cathedral in London. All right, there. Uh, many significant Christian writers from the fourth and fifth centuries comment on how the shepherd is important instruction for new Christians, regardless of whether it was considered part of the formal Bible. Even figures who did not include the shepherd among the New Testament text thought it was too important to be discarded. The book was too important to ignore, but too odd to be considered biblical, part of a halfway category that biblical scholar Francois Bovan called useful for the soul. Now, as the shepherd helps demonstrate 
whether a religious text is included or excluded from the Bible, is not necessarily an indicator of its popularity or significance. And while scholars often lament that the shepherd is boring, pedantic, or too long, its style likely made it ideal teaching material for early Christians. Esoteric tests that required deeper philosophical knowledge, like the Gospel of Truth or the Gospel of Judas, may have been ideal for some Christians who had access to more education. But texts that make bite-sized claims, like uh, don't think about another man's wife, Shepherd 29.1, rid yourself of grief, Shepherd 41, or believe that God is one, Shepherd 26.1, are easier for readers to carry with them and apply them to everyday decisions of their lives. The word canon, referring to text to get a seal of approval from authorities, comes from the Greek word for a measuring stick. Which books measure up? In religious communities, the idea of the canonical text can be especially limiting in determining what believers can or can't read or believe. Apocryphal literature, however, allows us to see what wasn't always the case. Ancient Christians didn't think they were bound to the same specific set of stories that churches focus on today. The long history of reading Apocrypha shows how some Christians have always been interested in reading the Bible from the back cover torn off, continually exploring religious ideas. This is written by Chance Bonar, postdoctoral fellow for the humanities at Tufts University. I read this and I thought, you know what, they're right. They are at the line. And it was simply that. They can't have limiting uh, texts that are limiting or determining what believers can or can't read or believe. So I went and I got the Ethiopian Bible, ordered it from Amazon. It's interesting. I'll sell you that. It's not. And also got the uh, 54 books of the Apocrypha also. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because, and this and this is through no fault. This is just the way the church is at times. And you'll, if you go to church regularly, you know what I mean. And it doesn't matter what church you go to. You go to church, and it seems that the teachings never move beyond the level of it doesn't get they're always worried about baby christians baby christians they got to cater to the baby christians or they won't come back to church meanwhile you got those of us that have been in the church for years and decades we know this stuff but we need more we need more uh what's the what's the word that paul said we got to stop eating baby food (laughs) well that wasn't the word he used we got to stop eating baby food and let's start eating substantial meals. That's what I'm talking about. And that's the problem with the church today. They're always worried about trying to get new members, always worried about baby Christians. What about the mature Christians, the adult Christians in the church? If the church won't serve my needs, I will serve my own. Hence, I'm ordering the Apocrypha. And I did. Got two different books on Apocrypha. They're very reasonable at Amazon. Had them the next day. And I believe in Jesus. I do. 
But nonetheless, if the church is going to be catering to the baby Christians, because then they never, then they never move on. They never move ahead. They never move further. You're stuck with the church always having to go back to get the baby Christians before we got to move ahead as one. We must move ahead as a group. Well, okay. But the thing is, you don't. You go in circles as a group. Baby Christians, if it's real, will always come back. Because once you start tapping into the knowledge with them and sharing with them, they're going to want to know more and more and more and more. That's the way we are as human beings. That's what we do. All right. So there. Why gasoline prices are set to fall even as oil marches toward $100 a barrel? Now, figure that. Guys, I'm telling you now, I'm losing it. <laughs> Thinking about this one. Oh, my. So, anyways. Hmm. Got to do some stuff here, boys and girls. For the past nine years, you've been listening to John Jeffers talk about prepping, politics, and anything he thought you should know about. Hello, I'm Sydney Jeffers, and John is my dad. You know, some people will take the chance to unlock infinite possibilities to change their future. Some will not even try at all. Which one are you? You see, my dad started selling data storage for people. He thinks being a prepper means backing up and saving all your data on your computers and cell phones. Being prepared means not just on the lookout for a disaster coming your way, but for everyday life. It's a fact that people have had their hard drives crash, computer and phones stolen, even lost or damaged. There are lots of companies offering to store and save your data, and they mean to charge you a pretty penny for it too. But with Got Backup, you only pay $9.97 a month for six terabytes of storage. My dad says that this is the best value in the industry, so you owe it to yourself to be his customer. Don't be the person who waits until it's too late when you've lost all of your important pictures, videos, music, paperwork, and data, and say to yourself, I should have turned the key and got backup. So, Intelligentsia, the question remains, which person are you going to be? Go to www.john-jeffers.com. Again, www.john-jeffers.com and be my dad's customer. You'll be glad when that day comes. Hi everyone, Donald Lowry here, and I'm the marketing director for Contra Radio Network. You know what helps me sleep well? Physical gold. Gold IRAs help people diversify. The best gold IRA company is Augusta Precious Metals with thousands of happy customers. Learn why Americans get gold IRAs. Get Augusta's free guide. Text CONTRA to 68592. That's C-O-N-T-R-A to 68592. Or go to com. That's AugustaPreciousMetals.com. From the DMZ to the NATO front, this is CRN. Broadcasting from the Augusta Precious Metals Studio, this is the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. All right, my friends. Back to it. Where are we? Oh, yes. 
why gasoline prices are set to fall even as oil marches toward $100 a barrel. Go figure this one out. The U.S. oil futures posted a climb of nearly 9% in September, but gasoline prices at the pump have declined and are expected to fall further thanks in part to what some analysts refer to as seasonality. While oil has struggled, gasoline's seasonality has kicked, is kicking into high gear, said Patrick Down, head of the petroleum analysis at GasBuddy. Prices and demand for fuel tend to change with the seasons, with prices and demand having a tendency to rise in the spring, reach a peak during the summer driving season, and fall back during the winter months. The average uh, U.S. price for a gallon of regular gasoline was uh, $3.793 on Friday afternoon, down 5.3 cents from a week ago, and about a penny less than a month ago, according to GasBuddy. Now, the fall in prices for the fuel comes even as oil prices have seen overall gains in recent weeks, with the U.S. benchmark of the West Texas Intermediate Crew settling Wednesday at 93.68 a barrel, the highest finish since August 29, 2022. Prices for the front month of West Texas Intermediate uh, contract gained 8.6% in September, according to Dow Jones market data. Weakening demand, the transition to cheaper winter gasoline, and California's waiver allowing the change to begin now, all will put downward pressure on gasoline prices nearly nationwide starting the next week or so, potentially going for several weeks or a month, DeHaan told MarketWatch. Now, the California Air Resources Board, if that doesn't sound like a bloated bureaucracy, I don't know what does, said that it would allow gasoline sold or supplied for use in California that exceeds the reed vapor pressure limits through the end of October 31. That would mark an early transition for the state from the lower reed vapor pressure gas used in the summer to help reduce gasoline emissions to the higher reed vapor pressure gas used in the winter. Now, California drivers often pay among the highest prices in the country, and much of it attributed to state taxes on the fuel. So on Friday afternoon, the average price in the state stood at $6.33 a gallon, up 26.8 cents from a week ago. Oil prices, meanwhile, have faded in front of a $100 barrel on profit-taking following the steep price run-up in September. But there's more upside to oil, and it's simply pausing the uptrend, said Brian Milne, product manager and editor and analysis at DTN. Crude costs will continue to underpin gasoline prices on a nationwide average, but prices for the fuel will remain well off the summer highs, he said. Oh, boy. (coughs) So, crack spreads, which are defined as the price between crude oil and the petroleum products derived from it, have declined sharply, indicating the likelihood of lower retail gas prices ahead, analysts said. Now, Milne said the reason behind the fall-off in the crack spread is the rally in crude prices, with more concern over crude availability than gasoline. Crude stocks at Cushing, Oklahoma, the NYMEX delivery hub, 
have dropped to their lowest since July of 2022, according to Energy Information Administration data, and are moving closer to operationally low levels, said Matt Smith, a lead oil analyst, Americas, at Kepler. He says crack spreads have also been under pressure due to seasonality. On August 31, based based on data from Oil Price Information Services, West Texas Intermediate for October delivery settled at 83.63 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange, while the September reformulated gasoline contract ended at $116.19 a barrel for a price difference of $32.56 a barrel. In Friday's settlement, that's last Friday, settlement of 90.79 a barrel for the front month November West Texas Intermediate Futures and $2.44 a gallon or uh, given 42 gallons in a barrel or $102.48 a barrel. For the October reformulated gasoline contract, which expired at the end of the session, show the crack spread has fallen to about $11.69. Now that may mark a new low for the year so far, said Tom Gloza. Said Tom Gloza, he's global head of energy analysis at Opsis. It's a Dow Jones company. Gasoline margins for refiners have plummeted, particularly in California, said. October will bring falling leaves and falling gas prices. He says the gasoline rally is over, but tune back in in the first quarter of 2024, and it'll be back, he said. There are lots of $3 gallon retail gas price abilities in the Great Lakes, the Great Plains, and the Gulf Coast states, said Closa. The West remains higher than the rest of the country, but you'll see some glacial rate drops even in California, Nevada, and Arizona. October could see U.S. national average gasoline prices fall at around at a rate of around a penny a gallon a day. <coughs> so, Milne also expects to see retail gas prices decline through the year, assuming no major industrial accidents or hurricane menacing Gulf Coast refineries. Even so, Milne said retail gas prices may not see a bottom until January. So you can expect the national retail gasoline prices to fall into a 320-340 a gallon range late in the fourth quarter, he said. So there you go. That's why. And it's coming. But is it, you know what? I still remember when Trump was in office, it was not even 320. 320, 320-340 is now called cheap gallon of gas. When Trump was in office, it was two-something, like 279. What else we got here? Oh, this is important. This is important. The U.S. national debt sits at $33 trillion, but here's why the country won't pay it down. You know, if the, the $33 trillion is a figure some politicians and finance mavens and everyday citizens find astonishingly high. So much so that budget hawks within the U.S. House of Representatives in an attempt to rein in spending may trigger a government shutdown effective October 1. But government deficits don't exactly work like household debt, as New York Times columnist and Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman, who's a goof, contends in his May 13th offering. The big bad number isn't as scary as it seems. <laughs> yeah. 
<clears throat> commercial real estate has outperformed the S&P 500 over 25 years. And rich young Americans have lost confidence in the stock market and are betting on uh, three assets. And super rich Americans are snatching up prime real estate abroad, uh, uh, prime real estate abroad as U.S. housing slumps. Now, governments aren't like people, he wrote. They must service their debts, pay interest, and repay principal when bonds come due. But they don't necessarily have to pay them off. They can issue new bonds to pay principal on old bonds and even borrow to pay interest as long as overall debt doesn't rise too much faster than revenue. <coughs> so Krugman breaks down and defends his thesis in convincing fashion, even though it's easy to see why so many Americans are spooked by today's debt figure and ill-informed politicians try to make political football of it. In fact, You'd have to go back to 1837 to find the, the last time the United States was debt-free. Texas was still an independent republic, and only 26 states existed. So how big is the debt, really? One trillion, let alone 33, is a number many folks can't quite wrap their heads around. It is a million times a million, though trillion sounds so close to billion. That's easy to lose track of just how behemoth a sum it is. So here are a few ways we can put the current level of U.S. debt, roughly $33 trillion, in perspective. It's 22% higher than the U.S. gross national product as of June 30th, which was about $27 trillion. It's six times the U.S. debt figure in 2000, $5.6 trillion, paid back interest-free at the rate of $1 million an hour. $33 trillion would take more than 3,750 years. Voters and elected officials can understandably get bent out of shape when they assume that running up the debt so much is due to reckless and runaway spending. We've all been told to spend less when you may avoid high interest credit card debt and delay material gratification on big ticket items until you've worked out the numbers first. That's all true and it's smart. Excessive personal debt will force you to spend a lifetime playing catch up or to declare bankruptcy, which leaves a black mark on your credit score for between 7 and 10 years. But debt-wise, comparing the federal government to a family of four doesn't work. That's because the principles of personal finance don't apply to how governments spend. So unless you or someone you know plans to dress as Uncle Sam in the next local 4th of July parade, dismiss the notion that governments are people. They play by entirely different pocket rules which Krugman makes clear as crystal. So, need a pad explanation of why the government need not pay off its debt, even though you must? Here it is in blunt Krugman style. You are going to get old and eventually die. The government isn't. In other words, the capacity of the United States or any sovereign nation to manage its debt boils down to one question. Can it still produce revenue to meet its obligations? That's where this notion of servicing debt as opposed to paying it off comes in full into play. All right, got it? To be sure, Krugman notes by way of Rudyard Kipling in his poem Recessional that all nations will be one with Nineveh entire and cease to exist. But excluding such a tragic event, 
in which case debt would be irrelevant anyway, governments normally see the revenues rise generation after generation as the economies they regulate and tax grow. Got it? So, that's why. You're dying, the government won't. I know. Look, I don't make these up for you guys. All right, my friends. That's what I got to do for this week. Um, I'm be heading out for New Mexico next week. And after that, I'll be in Phoenix the weeks after that. So, and after that, I don't know where I'll be. But, know this. I'll try and get some new shows in. If I can't, I'll just upload one of my old shows. All right, and we are on the Blessed News Network. Thank you, Jay Clayton, for putting us on there. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to me. I'm John Jeffers here on the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network.